Hello, and welcome back to the horrors. I'm Elise. I'm Shay. It's so good to be here with y'all. We're super excited for episode two. Yeah, an actual episode and not just us uh, talking in academic talk the entire time. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to get into the swing of things today. and We're really looking forward to the episode. So, But I guess before we start, how you doing? I'm doing, you know? <laughs> yes. I'm at that point where Elise and I both work in education, and I don't know what your school's looking like, but I'm just seeing like the tiny pumpkins everywhere. You know, like like the, the tiny little baby accent pumpkins that people just put on like the corners of their oh. desks and stuff. And like, uh-huh. it's always like a turning of the tide, mm-hmm. right? Like all of a sudden it gets to like September 29th and these pumpkins just kind of like pop up mm-hmm. like with no rhyme or reason. I don't know who puts them there, but they always just show up. I don't know. I, you're a little bit different. You work in an office. I work in a school. That's fair. So when I go in... It's only me and a couple coworkers in the hallway because the students are doing virtual learning because of COVID. So it's really rather like a ghost town. So you're saying there isn't a pumpkin fairy that's made it to the hallways? Well, I've put a considerable amount of pumpkins in my room. Personally, I put them there. But yeah, so you're no. the pumpkin fairy <laughs> for me, for me. But um, yeah, no, there are a couple in the office, but it's it's pretty it's pretty dismal to say the least. I don't know. I, I Someone has been decorating my office, <laughs> unbeknownst to me. These wow. things just show up. I mean, yeah, it used to be like our secretary of sorts, but I know she's not going in. So I just look around and I'm like, when did it get festive? I love that. I love a surprise festivity. In my mind, I would love it if there was something akin to a leprechaun, if it was just like a little baby jack-o'-lantern child <laughs> just kind of running around and placing pumpkins on corners and apexes I think and you're just something i think i am i i why isn't that part of halloween i mean people want to talk about like mischief night and tp'ing and shit but why isn't there like a pumpkin gremlin well some people talk about fairies fairies are kind of like a superstition in some cultures maybe there's yeah, a pumpkin fairy no <laughs> Well, there is the tooth fairy, yeah, but I mean, like, regular fairies. Like, in Scotland and in Ireland, sometimes they, like, certain people believe in fairies if they're, like, old-school, superstitious, Irish. They believe in, like, little fairies that live in trees. Now, that's what I want a children's book about. I want a children's book where the tooth fairy (laughs) changes form just for October with the introduction of pumpkin spice. With with they they taketh teeth and they bringeth... (laughs) tiny gourds that's what i want maybe it'll turn into a movie that we can watch and talk about (laughs) now maybe there already is one you know because something that's really great about horror is there's always like silly horror movies where Mm. they i mean or like b movies or just they're not meant to be great but they're great oh my god because they're there you know that is actually a really good segue into the movie that I want to talk about today. <laughs> right. So Elise and I are talking about our first times. And by mm-hmm. that, we mean our the first horror movies we ever watched and how maybe these movies shaped our perceptions of why we like horror or why we don't like horror. Elise would not tell me what movie <laughs> no. she was going to talk about today. So I'm on the edge of my seat, honestly. Well, so, okay. So first, I think when I say it, you are going to recognize it because I've known you for so long and we've had conversations about horror before we started this whole shindig. So I think when I say the title, you're going to remember. Yeah. So, okay. Let me just give a little bit of background. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the first movies that I remember giving me an introduction into horror. 
I have to say that I have a couple memories of this. And I think I alluded to this last week where I grew up in a house with an older brother and a dad where they would often watch scary movies in the family room. And the way the family room worked was, you know, there was the entrance to the garage, the front door. We only really had one TV that worked. So if you wanted to see what was on and somebody was already watching, you would like sit in the living room and see what was going on. So there were just so many times that I would be innocently walking through the family room or I just wanted to to try to hang with my dad and my brother. And all of a sudden I would just see something really shockingly violent. So I didn't really get a lot of storylines involving horror because I think I would chicken out before I really got to see it develop or I would come right in the beginning when somebody like got stabbed to death or something really gruesome and scary. But this is one of the first times I remember trying to sit through a horror movie. I was about eight or nine and the movie is called Idle Hands. (laughs) Do you know this movie? I don't think I do. Oh my gosh. Okay, so the movie is called Idle Hands and I didn't actually know what it was called until the other day. I knew I needed to do this movie, but I needed to track it down. And I googled horror movie where boy's hand gets possessed. And voila. (laughs) (laughs) I found it. I found it. And I did get to rewatch it. So this is a 1999 like B movie film. And what really made me laugh is that the tags are literally horror, fantasy and comedy. (laughs) I mean, horror comedy is a wonderful thing, but throwing in that fantasy, yeah, it's like pick a lane at a certain point, right? I mean, the thing is like, it was supposed, it's supposed to be funny. It's not serious and it still was enough to just traumatize me. But after I watched it, I realized I probably did what I always did, which was leave the room and didn't even get to see how the story played out because there were things that I just did not remember. But anyway, so the premise is essentially this boy's hand gets possessed. Idle hands ties back to that quote, idle hands are the devil's play thing, right? Have you ever heard that quote? No. I can't remember if that's in the Bible or if that's like an aphorism that, by that's Ben a, that's Franklin. That, <laughs> you know how Ben Franklin has all those aphorisms, like a dollar, a penny, a day, uh, or <laughs> um, early to bed, early to rise. That's like a saying, Ben Franklin. He has so many because he was such a wise guy. That should be the next game is who said this, the Bible or Ben Franklin? <laughs> Anyway, idle hands are are the devil's plaything, and this is basically about a boy who all he does is sit around on the sofa with his friends all day and smoke pot, and then his hand gets possessed. There's an evil spirit going around possessing the hands of those who are idle or who are not making good use of their time. In the beginning is when it's scary, and obviously there's going to be spoilers. So the movie opens up, and pretty much right away, the parents of the boy that we haven't met yet get murdered. Cut to the next scene. The boy wakes up the next day and he's just walking around the house. And it's scary because you know the parents are murdered somewhere in the house and you don't know who the murderer is. You don't know what's going on. So you just know the boy is hanging out in his house with his dead parents somewhere inside of it. So that was scary to me. I think the idea of like something being in your house without you knowing it or like something horrible happening to your parents without you knowing it. And the reason that we come to realize he wasn't affected is because he was the murderer. He His hand had already been possessed, right? So we do find that out later. But at the time, his room is on the third floor. So we just think that he's kind of out of the way and misses the intrusion clarification now is this hand like we're talking like adam's family hand where it's a detached thing okay so or no the first half of the movie it is attached to the guy so his name is anton tobias he's played by devin sawa devin sawa's in there yes <laughs> oh i love devin sawa <laughs> devin sawa of final destination and the stand by eminem music video <laughs> 
oh my gosh, I have never heard of him, but he's in this. Your boy. He's not my boy, but he was the early 2000s horror boy. All right. Well, he's in this movie. So the first half of the movie, his hand is attached to his body. The second half of the movie, after he tries to chop it off, Mm. it is detached from his body. So it really is like Adam's Family style hand. I know. So speaking of actors, so Seth Green is also in this movie. I know him because he plays Scott in Austin Powers. He plays Dr. Evil's son. See, the first thing that came to mind was, well, I was going to ask, did he write Looking for Alaska? <laughs> wait, wait, wait a second. Wait a second. That's John Green. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> okay. And then there's a guy, Eldon Henson. He plays Penub, um, which is his name. I don't know why. Wonderful. And then our lovely leading lady is Jessica Alba. A young 18-year-old oh. Jessica Alba, and she plays Molly. I love this. Devin Sawa <laughs> and Jessica Alba. Oh, my. I love this I, already. I'm really excited. I, I feel like this is probably the only time I'm ever going to tell you about a film that you haven't seen yet. I just love that your first horror movie was to be defined as an early 2000s terrible, objectively <laughs> terrible horror movie. And this was enough to scar you from the was, genre until oh, yes. present. And the idea of, like, your hand could be possessed. I think the whole movie was just, like, nobody really had any control over what was going on. And I think that that just stressed me out. It frustrated me, too. And I remember I watched this with my brother, and I can remember him saying, Elise, it's not even that bad. It's not even that bad. Like, it's ketchup. That's ketchup. (laughs) So, So moving with the theme of the podcast... Jessica Alba, what is she like in this movie? Okay, so let me paint the picture for you of the opening scene with Jessica Alba. We have our three guys hanging out. We have Mick, Penub, and Anton. They're hanging out at the house. All of a sudden, they look out the window. Well, they're smoking weed, by the way. All of a sudden, they look out the window. Cue sexy music. Cue slow-mo frame. Cue Jessica Alba in a cute jacket riding by slow-mo on a motorcycle slow head turn to the side, slow head turn back, pulls in. She's the girl who lives across the street from Anton. Of course she is. I know. I mean, can you get any more classic? So they make a lot of comments about her, like, oh, she's so hot. There's your girl, Anton, blah, blah, blah. So pretty early on, it's established that he is totally into her. And guess what she drops on the street? Her lyric book. Oh, I hate her already. (laughs) I know. So they see it. Mick is like, dude, you gotta go get that book. Give it back to her. This is your chance. So Anton goes, picks up the book, knocks on her door. She answers it. Thanks for my book. And then he can't even talk to her. He just runs away. So that's the first time we see her. The second time we see her, this is after Anton has accidentally murdered both of his friends because of his possessed hand. So first the parents, now the friends. Mm -hmm. First the parents, now the friends. And we see him murder his friends. Okay. So obviously he is... In distraught, but his hand is possessed. Mick gets hit in the head with an empty or a broken beer bottle, and then Penub accidentally gets his head cut off. I mean, it is just mayhem. I I mean, Shannon, it is horrifying. I I adore this already. I don't I don't know where where your issue lies with this. It is but terrible. This sounds beautiful to accidentally murder your parents and your two best friends. On top of it all, he picks up his cat, swings it around by the tail, and throws it out the window unforgivable i mean i love cats and that was just a little bit too much for me to bear the good news is nothing bad ever happens to the family dog i know nobody likes when something bad happens to the dog 
So he has to go get his cat and his hand makes him knock on Molly's door. So he's back on Molly's door. And this is the part where I, even thinking about it now, it's so frustrating. So he knocks on the door, Molly opens the door and Anton is literally covered in blood. He hasn't showered in days. It's been days since he's seen his parents, right? Oh, and by the way, at this point, they he did discover the dead bodies in the house, okay? Molly opens the door. She's flirting with him instantly, not even really concerned about the blood on him. She kind of assumes that he'd been in a fight. He keeps literally telling her, Molly, I'm dangerous. Molly, I don't know. I mean, he's fidgety. He's sweaty. He keeps hitting his hand. He looks like he's on drugs. But she's like, why don't you come in? My parents aren't home. I mean, it is red flag city, Shay. And she is into it. She's so into it. And by the way, she's wearing these cute little short shorts and this matching like pajama top and this matching pajama robe. She looks super cute. She has her like short 90s hair with a little flip at the bottom. Anyway, so he comes in and they start making out on the bed and his hand is possessed, mind you. And at what he like grabs her face and her neck a couple times and she's just like, <laughs> Kinky. I know. And then he grabs her her robe tie and he ties his hand to the bed. And then, you know, pretty soon after that, her parents come home. So he has to leave out the window. But they make plans the next night to go to the Halloween dance together. Classic 90s dance. Classic 90s Halloween dance. So you're telling me <laughs> if a sweaty, slappy, bloody boy slappy. showed up at your doorstep, you wouldn't just be so tickled. I... I don't think I would. I don't think I would. But she was into it, let me tell you. Apparently, she's had a crush on him for quite some time. So the fact that he had shown up at her door was just incredible. Meanwhile, I do want to mention, and, and quickly before this, we had we had a little cut to a scene with a woman. We have another female protagonist. Her name is Debbie LaCure. And she quickly establishes herself as a badass woman. She's a black woman and she is a druid or a witch, and she's a part of a generation or generations of women who have been hunting down an evil spirit that possesses people with idle hands or idle mentalities. So the idea is if you don't make good use of your time, if you're idle, if you're lazy, if you're messy, if you're slovenly, this evil spirit can possess you. It tries to possess the most lazy motherfuckers that exist. This is so interesting. Because, I mean, that's that's a trope in itself within horror is pretty much called the magical black person, where really, I don't even actually, actually, I'm not even going to say it's within horror, but essentially, it's a person of color that is there to usually guide the white protagonist and help them with their problems. Okay, well, that is literally what happens. And I would say that it's very common in horror just because of the magical element and mm-hmm. the mystical and the, fa- and the fantasy element, but... Mm-hmm. But absolutely, it, it sounds like that's what we have at play here. If sh- if her sole purpose in the plot mm-hmm. is to help Devin Sawa with his digit situation, then mm-hmm. that's we have a magical black person at, at work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and she she's a self proclaimed witch, right? Like this is what she does, and and she's been tracking this spirit for quite some time, which we can see through some plot development. But anyway. So time goes by and the fantasy element comes in when Devin Sawa's friends come back to life as zombies. Now, are their hands possessed? No, no, their hands are not possessed. Mick still has the beer bottles stuffed 
in his head and <laughs> Penub has his head in his arm. They're just like walking around. It's so gross. It's really gross. And of course, there's like gore comedy where Penub tries to eat something and then his neck starts oozing. And ugh, I just do not like that. But then like if they're coming back to life, shouldn't his parents come back to life? Too? That is a really good point. What happens is and Mick says this, we died and there was a white light and we knew that we could go towards the white light. There was a voice telling us to come to the white light, but it was so far away. So we just said, fuck it. <laughs> Lazy even in death. Exactly. Exactly. So they come back and they're they're chilling with Anton for a little while. But of course, at the end, there is a point where they do go to heaven and they do become his guardian angels of sorts. But for a good chunk of the movie, they are the undead sidekicks, which I think watching it <laughs> again was actually kind of funny. And there was some good humor there that I think I could appreciate now that I'm older and not nine years old and not scared of everything. Anyway, so the plots really overlap when we go to the school dance. And what I thought was really interesting is our leading lady, Jessica Alba, is dressed as an angel at the school dance. Of course she is. She is dressed as an angel. She's wearing her white fluffy bodice and her little wings and her little slide-on satin shoes. And she has a friend, actually, who's with her who's dressed as a devil. Okay, so we have an angel and devil. The friend's name is Tiffany. Classic. At the dance, the plots overlap because Debbie LaCure, our witchy lady, she comes and she's finally able to track down Devin. And she kind of partners up with this other random guy that I'm not going to get into. Um, but they have like some romance going on. At the dance, basically the hand at this point has been cut off. It has started terrorizing people. And on the way to the dance, it kills two people. Now get this. I'm sorry, three people. Get this. It finds a couple making out in the car. And right as they're about to totally bang, the girl has her top off. The hand kills them both. Dun, dun, dun. I mean, interesting. The other person it kills is, I'm not sure if it's a teacher or a principal, but it's a man who we assume is, he's in the school. So he's somebody who is a part of the school staff um, in his office while the dance is going on. And he's on the phone with somebody having phone sex. And the hand comes and kills him. At least it's an equal opportunist hand. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we have those two instances where we have people like engaged in sexual activities and they are quickly murdered but my thing is i would say sex is a very unidle thing wouldn't you say funny you should say that because the reason we are to assume that anton's left hand isn't also possessed is because he tells us that he uses it for weed and masturbating wonderful so that's the reason why only one of his hands is possessed and that is told to us in the film or we are led to believe that based on conversation it's kind of like a haha comedic moment the hand wreaks havoc on the dance everyone's running and screaming molly and her friend tiffany they escape through the ventilation system again molly as the angel tiffany as the devil they're trying to get through this fan they have it jammed with a shoe molly gets through but then the hand comes and Tiffany gets caught up in the fan. She's chopped to pieces. So our devil is killed, uh, which is interesting. Then ultimately, our fabulous lady, Debbie LaCure, she shows up and she's able to stab the hand through the center with this special knife. And the hand shatters. The evil is destroyed. Our leading lady, Molly slash Jessica Alba, lives. And at the end, she stays with Anton because she thinks he's so cute. And even though his hand almost kills her, she's like, I'm into this. 
So you're saying Devin Sawa showed up for a date with Jessica Alba at a dance with no hand and there wasn't conversation about it? Well, he said it was a part of his Halloween costume. Oh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this movie <laughs> scarred you <laughs> for life. I am telling you, I really think that it had to do with that whole out of control element. Also, there were so many moments in that movie that I remembered watching and being like, why would you do that? Which reminds me of another thing I often feel when I've watched bits of horror, which is frustration. I think a lot of times I'm seeing people do really fucking stupid things. And of course, you know, that is not always the case. Sometimes you do the best you can with what you have, right? But Jessica Alba, this man is covered in blood. There's no way he smells good. It's been days since he showered. His hand keeps trying to slap you. You're going to make out with him? Horror loves horny teens. <laughs> yeah, well, this movie was all about horny teens. Especially in the early 2000s. Come on. 1999, baby. I mean, Classified. we are on the cusp of the new millennia. It is out of this world. How are our ladies portrayed? I think Debbie LeCure's character, um, played by Vivica Fox, I think that she's a pretty strong interpretation. She survives. She's all good. She gets to kill her spirit, so she comes out pretty triumphant. Jessica Alba lives, but um, we also see a lot of girls also murdered, portrayed as sort of either dressed up as a devil or engaging in sexual acts, which I think is interesting. The mom is murdered, but we don't really get to know her. She just seems like a pretty classic mom. But yeah, I mean, women, some good things, some bad things, but they are definitely not portrayed as very smart. I mean, in general, Idle Hands tends to, I guess, lean the conservative way in the sense that the hand is murdering stoners or folks that are lazy or folks that aren't, what, taking the opportunity or things of that nature. Because I'm wondering what the motivation of killing the parents was. Like, I'm wondering mm -hmm. what the context of that was because it seems to have a purpose in the beginning, but then towards the end, it just kind of starts to get all trigger finger for lack of a better, <laughs> yeah. lack uh -huh. of a better thing. Like, like that's the thing. It's like, I, I appreciate the mythos, but it's almost like stick to it. Right. Well, this hand possesses people who are idle. It kills anybody that mm. the person who is possessed is close mm. with. Okay. 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 That's fair. So do I recommend it? I do. Well, how do you... <laughs> 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 well how okay so so with this with this in mind how do you think that this like shaped your perception of horror then like if this is you're saying your first taste which it sounds like it was an interesting taste mm -hmm. well how do you think like watching this or you know selected scenes in this because i know you rewatched it recently for mm -hmm. the sake of this what what difference did that make how you approached horror in the future well i think that I was far too young to appreciate whatever social commentary the film was trying to make. I didn't even know the name of the movie, so I couldn't even make that connection. <laughs> Probably wasn't even sure what Idol meant. To me, it just really, I had a lot of memories of what I perceived as just like mindless, horrifying gore. Like there's a scene, and, and it's supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be over the top. Like there's a point in the beginning when the mom is pulled under the bed and, and murdered and just blood spatters out from under the mattress. It's disgusting. And um, like when the friends are murdered and they come back from the dead and you just have to look at them with their mortal wounds still very much visible. I mean, it's so gross. So I think that in my head, it just made me think horror is just full of gore. Um, it's mindless. It's... 
scary. It's uncomfortable to look at. And so I think that's one of the things that really scarred me about that. That kind of horror I tend to attribute to gunshots in an action movie, right? Where it's like after Mm -hmm. a while, you kind of get like desensitized for it or it's like played. Mm Mm-hmm. And especially in what this sounds like a little bit of a horror comedy. Yeah. It's played, it's played for the gag. Like you're, like one of right. them eating something and it falling out of their neck and things yeah. of that nature. Which, again, to a nine-year-old, maybe that isn't the highest thing on your what you find funny list at the time. But <laughs> definitely looking back now, like that's something that would draw me to a horror comedy is its use of gore and just how, right. just how gratuitous it mm-hmm. is is part of its charm, I think. Right. I mean, at this point, I feel okay about it. At that point, I did not. Also, just sort of like, I think looking back, like the control that the women didn't have, save Debbie LaCure, but I don't think I stayed and watched the film towards the end. I might have had a different attitude about it had I stayed and watched how the plot played out. But, you know, Jessica Alba, she's, you know, she survives, but she does not ever seem like she's in control because she's, you know, she has a crush on a guy with a possessed hand. I mean, how much control can she really have in that situation? Also, her friend Tiffany, when she's at the dance, Tiffany makes out with Pnub, whose head is stuck back on his dead body with a spatula, and she's making out with him. And there's so many jokes about how he's going to get some. And it's like, oh, man, Tiffany, you're making out with a dead guy, and you don't even know it? (laughs) Like, that is so gross. It's Um, hilarious. It is. Like, it's funny. It it is. But at the time, I think in in my little girl head, I was like, this is horrifying. Like, that all these things can be happening and you don't even know. Anyway, that really stuck with me. Other than that, I really, I wish I had more of a, of a like clear memory about what at that time disturbed me so much, but it was probably just a lot of the surface level stuff I didn't know how to read. But yeah, I, I do feel pretty good that I was able to go back and watch it and sort of conquer my fears. I, I did have to call upon my roommate to watch it with me. So I had a buddy and we did watch it at 3.30 in the afternoon when it was light out. But you know, baby steps. <laughs> Amazing. So I have done so much talking. I want you to talk about your film as well. Right. So I think my experience in terms of my first horror movie couldn't be more opposite <laughs> to what yours to what yours was. And not for I wouldn't say for lack of gore or vis- visceralness. I, I think that your movie and my movie have this in common, but this movie is I would say generally acclaimed as a as a good horror movie, as a straightforward haunted house horror movie. And it's also an interesting thing because this film was directed by a prominent horror director at the time, Toby Hooper, who directed Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which obviously has a legacy of its own. But then it was also produced by Steven Spielberg. So you're talking a big budget mm-hmm. horror movie in 1982 so most horror movies in the 80s i would say didn't have a budget that came close to what this movie got and i think that has a lot to do with how fantastical it ended up and its success but my first experience is with poltergeist Mm. how how familiar are you with poltergeist i'm familiar with the general storyline i'm also familiar with the what's the term i'm looking for the sort of legends surrounding the film that it is a Mm. cursed film yes yes which kind of is super exciting and enticing but other than that i i'm not very familiar with it at all i've never seen it because i was scared of it (laughs) right (laughs) A synopsis to set the scene, 
it's pretty much a family moves into a house that unbeknownst to them is on a burial ground. They hear from a CD real estate developer and you learn throughout the movie that it was land that had just opened up and it's a great place to raise a family. But you come to find out that instead of moving the graveyard, they just moved the headstones and they left the bodies of all of the folks underneath. So essentially, they move into this house and the family's youngest daughter, Carol Ann, who's played by Heather O'Rourke, and I'll get into you know what happens to her in real life later, which kind of adds to why this is considered a cursed film. But essentially, what ends up happening is Carol Ann gets sucked into another dimension, into a ghostly dimension. And using the static on the TV, the family is able to communicate with her and by bringing in paranormal investigators, they go into the other dimension to get Carol Ann back, or they try to. So that's the premise of the movie. What do you mean they tried? To- <laughs> what do you mean? Well, I just, I mean, I guess I'm going to spoil the movie. I mean, but- yeah, I honestly, that'll probably make it easier for me to watch it. Yeah, I mean, she, she, she makes it back. But- I still want to see it. It's a classic. And it's been on my list, actually, for a couple months now, now that we're in spooky season. This was my first introduction to horror, I would say. I was about six or seven when I saw this, and I was at my grandparents' house. Mm. They were actually the folks who got me into horror. And to this day, I watch new horror releases with my grandparents that are like pushing 80. <laughs> And it's amazing. Um, I was wa- I was at my grandparents' house. We were watching it. I was- remember it was in their kitchen because I remember my mom was like, she's too young to watch that. But I snuck out in the doorway of the kitchen because my pop was watching Poltergeist in his kitchen. And I just ended up like sitting on the floor and watching it with him. And it scarred me. Um, <laughs> it absolutely terrified me. Wow. Wait, did he know you were sitting on the floor watching yeah. it? Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, okay. No, okay he okay. was... He was trying to make me brave and being like it's not that bad it's not that bad oh my god men love doing that they do they do but this is still in my top five horror movies of all time for my personal list this is in the top five of what i love in horror movies so in terms of its impact Mm -hmm. it being my first is a little ironic because of how much i love it to this day and it is so opposite to your experience because There are a lot of just strong, badass ladies in this movie. But um, in terms of prominent ladies, there are about five, I would say, throughout that are worth mentioning. To build the world of Poltergeist, it's a family of five. So you you have the dad, and then you have the mom, Diane, who's your typical suburban housewife. But I wouldn't say she's characterized as just that, right? Mm -hmm. She has a sense of humor. She's very caring. You see her in the beginning of the day helping bury the dead pet bird that dies in the beginning of the movie. And she's very sweet with Carol Ann. But then you see her like joking around with the eldest daughter. And then you see her like a little sexy in the bedroom with her husband and things of that nature. So she she is well-rounded. She's not like a one-tone character at all. So that's Diane. And then you have Carol Ann, who's five, is just this little toddler. Not well, not a toddler, right? Like, is that a toddler? Is five a toddler? I feel like it's the end of toddlerhood. It's a graduation from childhood. Yes. So a new child. Uh, (laughs) A brand new child. An ascending child. Um, We have Carol Ann. She's very curious. She's unafraid, I will say. She's very brave, especially when you're putting her against her older brother, Robbie, who's about eight, and he's very timid and fearful. Like, Mm. you see him in the movie being afraid of thunder and lightning and being afraid of being, like, left alone at night where Carol Ann's just like, bye, I'm good. (laughs) And then you have Dana, which her characterization makes me laugh so much. Dana's the eldest child in the family. She's 16, and she is characterized to be 
a little promiscuous. Okay. Especially with not a lot going for her. She doesn't have a lot of screen time. She doesn't have a lot of lines. She doesn't have a lot of appearances. She's actually like away for a lot of this movie. Hmm. And part of it makes me wonder if they want to characterize her as this normal teen who's aloof and out and about. And, and you don't know about her because I would say the storyline really comes from Diane. So how much does a mom really know about her teen daughter when she's 16 and out and about and things of that nature? But the things that we do see about her are very intentional of how she's characterized or what kind of girl we're supposed to see her as. Very interesting. For example, Dana's first appearance on screen is eating a pickle. A phallic symbol Mm -hmm. for sure. 100%. Like, (laughs) they make it a point to show that in in two different scenes that she's eating a pickle. Two different scenes? Yes. At at first, I was just like, all right, I like like what you like. Especially the second (laughs) scene, it's just like they have a full shot of her just biting a pickle. That Every time I think of pickles, I think of when I read Ethan Frome in the 11th grade and my English teacher told our class that the red pickle dish was a phallic symbol for a penis and a vagina. Everything's a dick. Everything is a dick. I can't, it's incredible. Anyway, so now I know for sure that is intentional. Okay, you cannot fool me. Absolutely. It's also very interesting because I was texting Elise last night that I was paying way too much attention to the costuming. But especially in Dana, she is always dressed in horizontal stripes. Hmm. And at one point, it's like the black and white. And for me, it was like, oh, she's like a jailbird. She's like this 16-year-old, especially because there's construction workers for them to put in a pool in their backyard. And Dana leaves for school in like a schoolgirl outfit. It's not skimpy. It's modest. But she goes out there and like they make a point of the construction workers hitting on her. And she does this very cutesy thing of giving them the finger and sticking her tongue out at them (laughs) and being like, oh, boys, as if. And you see Diane through the window just kind of like laughing at her, which I also appreciated because it's not punished that Mm -hmm. you know she's seen as like a sexual object both diane and dana are playing into it and making fun of it and they're still like maintaining their power in that which i really appreciate i love that but in that sense like she's always dressed in these like horizontal stripes and to me i read it as like she's jailbait or or something like that and like i said she isn't characterized very much outside of that i'll talk about some other things that she says as they come up but (laughs) anyway the movie starts out with them all being asleep but the tv being on and carol ann you see her waking up like as if she's like hearing something but you don't hear what she's hearing And she goes downstairs and she starts talking to the static on the TV. I can't. She's saying things like, who are you? No, please. My name's Carol Ann. (laughs) Talk louder. I can't hear you. Um, So this goes on for a couple nights where she's talking to the TV and you have that infamous scene where I believe it's the cover actually of the movie where it's just her facing the TV with her hands up. Yeah. Then it culminates where there is an earthquake or they what they family believes is an earthquake after Carol Ann starts talking to the TV, but she sees that it's a specter or what she calls the TV people. So then the next day, you know, they're all getting ready for breakfast and there's just certain things that happen at the kitchen table that are weird. Robbie's milk glass just shatters in his hand. He goes to pick up his fork and it's like bent all the way over. And then later in the kitchen, the mom goes to clear the table and she turns back around and all of the chairs are stacked on top of the table. Like she goes to like bend down and it's like a shot where she's looking at the table being clean. She goes down to throw something out and she lifts back up and all the chairs are stacked on top of the table in a pyramid. And Carol Ann is sitting right there and she's like, the TV people? 
And Caroline's like, yeah. So you can tell that there's something haunted. But something I love so much about the way that Diane is characterized is she asks Caroline questions about it. Like, she's just like, oh, so the TV people, like, she's she's maintaining a calm and she has a sense of humor about it. She's just kind of like, oh, okay, like, we have the haunted house on the block. <laughs> so the dad comes home from work and he sees that there's tape on the floor and he's like, what's going on? And the mom's really excited and she's like, Caroline, come here, come here. And she sits Caroline on this, like, space on the floor and Caroline gets pulled across the room by the TV people. And Diane's like, ooh, isn't that cool? Like, isn't that funny? And the husband starts shutting down. He's like, uh, uh, no one's gonna come in here until I figure out what's going on. Uh, uh, but she's just like, honey, I already checked the yellow pages. We got movers, but we don't got ghost hunters in there. Oh, so that's very interesting. She seems very... Aloof about aloof it. Or, or almost like not taking it seriously. But in almost like a, I'm having fun, I'm interested in this type of way. You could tell the husband is deeply disturbed. And I think that's something in other haunted house movies that you see is the opposite where the husband's like ignoring it the husband's either ignoring it or he's the curious one that's like experimenting with things or like watching the tapes in the attic or you know Mm, like doing mm -hmm. like playing into it a a little more where the mom kind of just usually dissolves and becomes this hysterical victim of sorts but in this the genders flipped which i thought was very interesting so finally you're getting to see that there's more and more things happening. So then one night, it's thunder and lightning storm outside, and Robbie's terrified, and his bed is right next to the window. And all of a sudden, you see the tree coming at the window, and you think that the tree is, like, falling over because of the storm, but no. This tree breaks the window, reaches into Robbie's bed, grabs Robbie, and pulls him out of the window into, like, the storm. Oh my gosh, how do you watch that and then look at a tree the same way again. And that's something about this movie is this movie wants you to be afraid of so many things. And <laughs> I, I'm going to oh list God. them off later. So Robbie gets pulled outside and he's screaming bloody murder as I think any mm-hmm. eight-year-old child who just got pulled out of their bed by a tree. Sounds about right. So Carol Ann's screaming, Robbie's screaming. The parents and Dana wake up. They all run outside. Carol Ann stays in bed. And then all of a sudden, you see Carol Ann's closet door open. Oh, Robbie and Carol Ann share a room. I think that that's oh, good context okay, to have. Okay, okay, okay. But Carol Ann's closet door opens, and you start seeing like this like blue light emitting from it, and it starts sucking things into it, like it's a vacuum. So toys start getting sucked into it. The bedding starts getting sucked into it to the point where Carol Ann is like vertical, hanging onto her bedpost. The closet is trying to suck her into this like portal of sorts. Meanwhile, everyone else is outside because Robbie's being eaten by this tree. The tree has like an opening in between two branches and Robbie is being pulled into the tree trunk. I am nauseous. I am nauseous, Shay. I am nauseous. (laughs) So... Robbie's being pulled into this tree and the dad's trying to be a hero and climb this tree and he's being battered by these branches and Dana's screaming and Diane is screaming and Caroline is screaming, but no one's hearing her. So Caroline gets sucked into the closet. And then when she gets sucked into the closet, it lets Robbie go. And the tree just in some of the, like the weirdest editing I've ever seen. I'll show you just like the scene, not the scene, but like this after. It literally looks like someone flushed a toilet and with the fake tree and it just swirled down the toilet. Like this is how bad the effects were. <laughs> but it was supposed to be that the tree was getting sucked into a cyclone. But oh. instead it just looks like there's the trees going into like a circle and like going off into the night. 
oh. And that's what they assume. They assume that a cyclone or a hurricane has just brushed by them, but none of their neighbors are affected. It was oh. just them. So then they go back in and they're looking for Carol Ann and Carol Ann's nowhere to be found. Robbie, and and poor Robbie, he just almost got eaten by a tree, and he's now left alone, because they're all looking for Carol Ann, and they're all screaming, and he's just kind of like, what the heck? So he gets plopped in front of the TV, and then the TV goes to, like, the setting, and it's all static, and you hear a very faraway voice of, like, Mommy, I can't find you, Mommy! And it's Carol Ann is in the TV, but she's not in the TV. She is using the TV because she is in another realm. This is insane. A few days go by and this family does not call the police because they don't think that they're going to believe them that their child is in the TV, which Mm -hmm. fair enough. But then the first instinct, the father goes to the local university and finds a paranormal investigator or a paranormal professor or something. But it is this old woman called Dr. Lesh and her two male lackeys <laughs> and they are a paranormal investigator team so they bring dr lesh back to their house and again now the house has gone full-blown circus mode where if you open carol ann and robbie's room there's just all of these toys floating <gasps> around in the room like it's a merry-go-round there's a record player playing itself and then there's like a lamp that's putting itself back together and taking itself apart and then there's you know this little clown doll that goes like boogie woogie like in, in the doctor's face that pretty much is meant to set the scene like oh this has just gotten worse so then they're sitting down for tea and they're all freaked out and the tea mug is like moving across the table and Diana's just sitting there straight face is just like yeah it's been a little bit of a circus around no, here that's that's not no Meanwhile, the <laughs> dad, but that's the thing. Meanwhile, the dad is falling apart. Like he's drinking in the middle of the day. She says that he hasn't been to work in like a week at this point. And he's like a very high achieving real estate agent. So that's not like him. He's falling apart at the seams. And the mom's just trying to maintain a sense of, not maintain a sense of humor, but she's talking to this paranormal investigator. Like she's having a consult for getting a new kitchen. Like, oh, okay. So what can you do for us? Not my baby is somewhere in this house. And the TV people took her. It is nuts. So what they end up doing is the paranormal investigators set up shop. Throughout the night, you see there's some more spooky stuff happening. And you find out that there is a portal between the closet in Robbie and Carol Ann's room and the ceiling of the living room. They run these like types of experiments where if you throw things into the closet, sometimes the things fall out of the portal and the first thing that falls out of the portal is all of this like old jewelry from the 1800s (gasps) which is showing that like this portal or this other dimension's been here for a long time a lot of this old jewelry and old tools like fall out of the ceiling for no reason just to be like there's a lot of people trapped (gasps) in there that's so cool i love when there's like old shit I love old shit. From what we read, the paranormal investigators are kind of used to going into these houses and finding that there's an off like pH level or like weird, like creaky pipe. This is like the first proof of anything significant that they've seen. So then they call in the big guns and the big guns is Tangina Barron, who is a medium. She comes in and she is sassy and she is funny. And the dad, of course, is kind of like, fuck this noise like what is going on Mm -hmm. tangina's like exploring the house and she asks the dad a question he puts his heads on his temple and he's like i'm trying to answer her with my mind and tangina just shows up at the top of the stairs and is just like i'm addressing the living here i asked you a question like just like being very 
very funny and then she disappears into the back of the house again and then the dad's like whispering to the wife he's just like i just don't believe that she can help and she should if she's a medium she should be able to hear me i can i just don't like trick questions like so she like proves that she's a medium or whatever like that Mm -hmm. so she goes off on this tangent about how carol ann is kind of acting like this beacon of light for all these lost souls that are trapped in between Hmm. she starts saying that essentially in this other world there are these souls that are attracted to her light because she is alive thus she is strong and a lot of these other souls don't know that they're dead yet so they don't Mm. know their way to the light so they think carol ann is the light which is why there's so much energy surrounding her and and i think you know obviously it's interesting that this little girl who in her outfitting she's always dressed in white Mm. she's always in like a white nightgown or like Mm. a white shorts and and t-shirt she has ghost white hair like platinum blonde hair and of course the beacon of innocence and Mm -hmm. all of a sudden it's her responsibility to shepherd these lost souls over to the light. But then Tangina goes to say, but there is a poltergeist that has attached itself to her because it is jealous that she is alive and it wants mm. her, it wants her life, it wants it wants to take over her. Like So obviously that is what's causing all of this strife. So they go to the portal in the bedroom and that's where they do the experimenting of like, they throw some tennis balls in there and the tennis balls come out the other side. Originally, Tangina's going to go in there and then the dad's going to go in there. But then the mom decides that they're going to tie a rope around the mom. They throw the rope in so that it goes in the closet and comes out the ceiling mm. of the floor downstairs. And they're going to grab her oh and pull her out the other side. Yes. So saving her girl. Exactly. So something I noticed is like every time you hear from Carol Ann, she's screaming for mommy. It's never daddy. Mm. It's never Robbie. It's never Dana. And first the dad's like, well, I'm going to go in there after her. And the mom kind of makes a point like, she won't come to you mm-hmm. like she wants me and but then of course it's written off where he's like well you're the only one strong enough to hold the rope anyway but no like it's really knowing that only a mom or the mother's love would be strong enough to get her baby mm-hmm. from the underworld and bring her back so she goes in there and Tangina's kind of yelling like go toward the light find your mom like trying to communicate with Carol Ann like what she should be doing and you would freak out because the dad starts <laughs> doing what the dad shouldn't be doing because oh the gosh. dad's trying to pull the mom back out because she doesn't he doesn't believe what Tangina is saying. And this skeleton head pops out of this closet door and screams in this dad's face. And it is amazing. Like it is terrifying, but oh amazing. So they end up pulling both of them out of wow. the ceiling. And what's so interesting about it is they're all covered in this pink goop. Ew. It's almost like it was a birth. <gasps> Literally, there's like this pink fluid. They're all covered in this like goopy stuff because literally they just got birthed out. The- of, 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 of whom? Of, of what? Uh, the I universe? Don't know. But there was a canal. There was a passage <gasps> and they came out this other end. And oh my. And there was even this scene where they're both not breathing and <gasps> they already have like bathtub of warm water set up and they're like, just get them in the water, clean them up. It literally looked like a crazy version of getting a baby to breathe after it's born. Oh, wow. So, which I was like, oh, this is so interesting. Hmm. Tangina has this thing where she puts her sunglasses on. She's like, this house is clean. Oh my gosh. You know, Tangina. So they think the poltergeist is gone. Then the next scene. You see them packing to leave mm-hmm. the house because Sounds they're good. like, we're going to get the fuck out of here. We're going to start mm-hmm. over. 
But they're not so worried about staying in the house because they were told that the poltergeist is gone at this point because they got Carol Ann back, so they weren't too worried about it. And this is what I mean with a funny characterization of Dana. So Dana goes to leave for the evening to like spend the night out with her friends. And she's like, all right, we'll get back before dark because dad wants to go spend the night at the Holiday Inn on I-74. And you see Dana cock her head to the side. She's like, oh, yeah, I I remember that place. Oh, my God. She's a 16-year-old girl, and she's talking about hanging out at the local flea motel. The 80s were a special, special time. But then you see the mom being like, what'd you say? And Dana's (sighs) like, nothing. Again, she's being characterized to think Mm -hmm. that she is a relatively sexually active Mm -hmm. or promiscuous girl even though we don't see her at any point being explicitly sexually active but through her outfits and through her characterization we are meant to see that she isn't the pure girl that carol ann is she is not this innocence that Mm. carol ann is there has to be this antithesis yeah, like the poltergeist didn't come for her. It came for the little exactly the little like the sign of innocence, the child. Exactly that. So interesting. So they're packing. The husband goes because he has to do manly business stuff in the night. <laughs> in the night. I don't know what he's doing. But either way, so it's Robbie, Carolyn, and the mom are home alone. Now, this is the scene that scarred me when I was watching this at my grandparents' house at six years old. Diane is doing some self-care, hashtag self-care. She is taking a bath, which I also appreciated because they have like a semi-nude scene of her. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading that in film, you're either a love interest or you're a mother. And once you're a mother, you're never not a mother. But it was just the idea of seeing this kind of sensual shot of the actress that plays Diane in the bathtub, just relaxing and being at peace with herself and doing her hair and not for the reason that her husband's home but just because she wants to like relax and i love that meanwhile carol ann and robbie are just playing around and then there's this clown doll that's been ever present throughout the movie so robbie's always been afraid of this thing and i was now afraid of this thing (laughs) so you can tell that there's tension building carol ann goes to sleep and robbie's like afraid of this doll the clown at one point was at a chair at the end of its bed and then it was gone he looks over one side of the bed it's not there he looks over the other side it's not there then he lifts back up the clown is right next to him the happy face is gone it's a mean face and this clown's arm wraps around robbie's neck twice puts him in a stranglehold and starts dragging him under (gasps) the bed all while laughing this evil clown laugh this scene is what fucked me up is this because it was like a raggedy and all where the arms and legs are really long but like the torso is tiny Mm -hmm. and this arm just snakes around this kid's neck and starts dragging him under the bed so then so then what so then what the closet starts no. going blue again. And Carol Ann's like, no more. Carol Ann's done with this. You could tell she's terrified, but she's like, oh my God, this shit is happening again. Meanwhile, Diane's in bed. She's wearing like a long sleeve shirt and underwear. And all of a sudden, like her shirt lifts up as if someone's putting their hand under <laughs> her shirt. And she starts freaking out and she starts putting it down and she starts thrashing around on the bed as if someone's trying to restrain her. And then the poltergeist lifts her (gasps) up the wall, across the ceiling and back down the other wall, all while she's like screaming. It's holding her in place because Mm -hmm. now it's trying to suck Mm -hmm. both the kids into the closet. Oh my gosh. Mind you, this is 20 minutes left in the movie. You think the movie's over. No, the climax is happening 20 minutes left in the film. 
Getting Carol Ann back, child's play. This is the climax. Oh my God. So now Robbie and Carol Ann are now both vertical being sucked into this closet while the mom is being pinned on the ceiling. Finally, it lets her go. She runs to the kid's room and this ghost ghoulie figure is like blocking the kid's door, screaming at her and Mm. it makes these loud noises. And she's like, you get away from my babies. Like Mm. goes all, Mm -hmm. goes all mama bear protective. She gets the door open and she ends up being able to pull both the kids out. So they go running downstairs and the dad pulls up back home with the real estate guy, the guy who sold them the house. I always laugh at this line where the dad gets the guy by the collar is just like, you said you were going to move the cemetery, but all you did was move the headstones. Because you see like the blue light, the house is shaking. <gasps> and so before Diane could get to the kids, she ends up outside. She's screaming to the neighbors for help. The neighbors think she's crazy. She's like, I need help. I need to get my kids. I need to get out of here, blah, blah, blah. So then she's running back to the house. But you know, remember how I said they were digging a hole for the pool? Mm. At this point, it is just a muddy pit. She slips and falls in. And when she surfaces <gasps> up out of this muddy water, there's a skeleton looking right at her. And all of these skeletons start floating <gasps> to the top. All of these skeletons that were buried there. And the skeletons, I mean, they're not alive. They're not supernatural skeletons. But you can see that there are skeletons kind of like multiplying in this pool and oh. trying to get her f- to stop leaving the pool. A fun fact, they are real skeletons. The set designers ended up acquiring real cadaver skeletons from another country. So these are actual dead people. Why? But they think that's part of the reason why this film ends up being so cursed. Um, yeah. So... <laughs> Real skeletons in the pool. Oh my gosh. For her to have to act that with real skeletons, I mean that she probably wasn't even pretending to be terrified. She fights her way out of the pool. She gets inside. She gets Carol Ann and Robbie, gets to the front door as the husband's opening it. And as they open the front door, a casket just shoots out of the ground (gasps) in front of the door, blocking the dad being able to get in. And all these skeletons just start flying out. And all of a sudden, these caskets just start shooting vertically out of the ground everywhere like the family's trying to run and these caskets just start flying up unearthing flying out through the kitchen floor out out of the backyard next to the car to block the door from opening these skeletons just start coming out of nowhere and again these skeletons aren't alive but it's almost like this force is like bringing them all to the surface my jaw has been unhinged from my mouth for 20 minutes i cannot believe i have never seen this actually i can because it sounds so scary but this is insane then they finally get in the car and who pulls up from her night out on the town but dana she comes in and she looks at the house and starts screaming but the shot is so intentional because there's hickeys all over her neck oh my god and of course she pulls up in a red sports car Mm. and there's teen boys and letterman jackets in the back And again, it's intentional about the type of girl that this girl is meant to be characterized as. And again, disclaimer, any teenage girl in high school that gets a hickey and makes out with boys and has been to the Holiday Inn on (laughs) Route I-74 is not morally abject and is not in any way bad, but especially in the 80s and just the Mm -hmm. way that this character is meant to be characterized Everything is super intentional. So they get Dana in the car and the house essentially just gets sucked into itself. (gasps) Like the portal opens up and the house gets sucked into itself and the house just disappears. The family drives away. Uh They all just like pile into this hotel. And the last scene of the movie is the dad 
taking the TV out of the motel room and putting it in front of the door and slamming the door shut. And the movie ends. Wait, okay. I like that ending. I like that ending. It's very funny. In summary, Diane was a badass. Carol Ann was the bravest five-year-old to ever live. Mm -hmm. Tangina was super powerful. Dr. Lesh, I didn't talk about her very much, but she was very intelligent, very Mm -hmm. smart, very resourceful. And Dana didn't die, even though her only character trait was screaming (laughs) and being a little promiscuous. Right. No one dies in this movie. I love that. I love that. I hate when people die in movies. It's so upsetting. So there are people associated with this movie who did die, however. Mm -hmm. So as Elise said at the top, this is considered a quote unquote cursed film. There were some really unusual deaths tied to this movie like heather o'rourke who played carol ann she was actually filming the third poltergeist movie it was reported that it was cardiac arrest but they misread it and it was some sort of bowel obstruction and she ended up dying from sepsis at age 12 in the middle of filming the third movie and then the actress who plays dana was strangled to death by (gasps) an ex-boyfriend when she was 22 oh my gosh that is so sad it's unbelievably sad But yeah, that's Poltergeist. And like I said, to this day, love it. Still in my top five. And especially because this movie wants you to be terrified of everything. (laughs) Clowns under your bed, Mm. your closet, Mm. your swimming pool, Mm. portals that take you to another dimension, the static in your TV. Trees. Trees. This movie wants you to be afraid of everything. And that's the thing. I wouldn't say that there was a particular fear of trees after this movie, but I had a distinct fear of clowns after this movie because of that pulling under the bed scene. Mm. Like that stuck with me for a long time. It's not hard to be afraid of clowns. It really isn't. And funny enough, I think that is why my association with horror probably is what it is, because you're rooting for all of these characters, almost. Mm -hmm. Even Dana, you know, she's just kind of there. But all of these characters are fairly resourceful. They're fairly reliable. They're fairly smart. You're rooting for them. No one dies. And it is just a beautifully done movie. And it holds the fuck up. (laughs) I love this movie. I love the effects. I I love the acting. I love the humor in it. I love just the appearance of all of the ghouls. Even if it does look a little cartoonish now, everything's done almost practically. It's wonderful. So I think this really set the course for me loving horror because even though it terrified me and I could not watch this movie again until I was a teen or maybe even in college, it really set the scene for me. This mom went into another dimension to bring her baby back. She was this badass. Like She was at no point a victim in this movie whatsoever. Even Carol Ann, when she comes back, it's not like she's like a shell of the child. Like, no, she's still like bossing her brother around after she came back from her little trip in the TV with the TV people, right? Like every person in this is just super powerful. And I think that really impacted my relationship with horror because you were just able to connect with these characters in a way that was just super, uh, for me, at least impactful. Wow. That was great. I feel inspired. I feel like a new woman. I want to watch it. 
You said earlier that, you know, you had to have your roommate watch Idle Hands with you (laughs) and you watched Idle Hands with your dad and your brother. What are the conditions that you can watch a horror movie now? Oh my gosh. In order for me to watch a horror movie, it has to be the perfect amount of spontaneous, but also planned. So maybe if I, if I plan something, maybe like an hour or two, or maybe nowadays, maybe like a day before, so I don't have too much time to think about it. I don't want to think about it too much. Also, it helps if I'm in a great mood. Okay. So if I start in a great mood, then I have a long way to fall before I'm feeling awful about myself and about my life watching this film. So I like to be in a good mood and I also like to be in a group of people where I can sit in the middle so I feel protected on all sides. I hate feeling exposed when I'm watching something scary. It's not fun for me. And I usually like to ask permission from the people I'm watching with if I can talk during the film. It helps me if I can talk and make commentary and try to reason my way through what's going on. But yeah, those are my conditions. It's a lot. (laughs) You have a drawn out contract (laughs) necessary for you to watch these films. What about you? What do you need? To watch horror. Do you need a certain mood or do you need anything? Is it just something you can just do? It's something I could just do. incredible. This, yes, this is something that rainy day, watch it. Sunny day, watch it. (laughs) Have two hours free before bed, I'll watch it. Doing laundry, watching it. I mean, and, and here's what I'll say. I don't think every night is a poltergeist night because this is a film where you are really meant to sit and take it in. But I love putting movies on like Idle Hands or at least the way the types of movies that you described when you were describing Idle Hands (laughs) as like just like background filler movies. I'll put something like Final Destination on in the background. Oh my God. Because to me, it's like, it doesn't demand too much of your attention. A lot of them, at least, especially in the early 2000s, and that's not a knock on early 2000s horror because I actually adore the cheesiness of early 2000s horror. But that kind of horror where it really is just like teens getting killed in innovative ways in a way that's a little bit comedic and Mm -hmm. a little bit chilling and a a lot of it entertaining. Mm -hmm. That's just the kind of casual thing I'll have on in the background. Wow. You'd never need to convince me. (laughs) I believe you, for sure. The last point that I had was, what do you think our first time watching horror says about what we're afraid of as adults? Wow. I would definitely say, sort of based on the things that stood out the most to me about Idle Hands, is is fear of a loss of control. Also, the fear of thinking you know someone, but you don't. And the fear of hurting people close to you. And I think those are all things that are shown, of course, in comedic, like campy, B-movie type ways, but they're all very prevalent there. You know, we see Anton killing his parents, killing his best friends by accident, not even having control over that. We see the women in the film not really having control over their fates or thinking that they know somebody, but they don't, you know, seeing them constantly in those dangerous situations. I definitely think those are our fears that I have that I think you can connect back to that first experience with horror, trying to sit through that horror film and and feeling those things. What about you? I think for me, it's losing someone dear. Mm. Having somebody just there one second and then gone the next Mm. and that person seems so close but knowing you can't reach them. Mm. And and that's a life thing. It's very perennial, like death isn't going to go away. I think that sense of that person is just lost in a place where, you know, you can feel them, but you can't see them and you can't really hear them. And you just feel like you can't get to them. I think that's terrifying. Clowns. (laughs) 
Oh my gosh. Um, and I mean, even so, I think that the type of horror that tends to chill me is is the supernatural type because I do believe in ghosts. I do mm-hmm. I do believe in the supernatural. <laughs> Movies like The Conjuring oh, and Haunting in Connecticut were some of the things that scared me the most on my first pass of them. So definitely haunted house movies kind of have a place in my heart. Oh, and that's another thing. Elise knows this about me. I'm super specific when it comes to like the spaces I occupy. Like mm. there are certain spaces for certain purposes. So for <laughs> for example, like even in college, like I didn't like people sitting on my bed because that was like the space where I slept. Mm-hmm. I didn't like doing homework in my bedroom because I didn't want to mix my mojos. I didn't want to mix my energies. And the feeling of like kind of going into a house and knowing that it has a predetermined feeling and it has like a predetermined mood or like a history that is then going to influence me mm. and I cannot make that space what I want to make it <gasps> is something that gives me so much anxiety. That makes so much sense for you. And especially with lockdown and, and COVID, the prospect of working from home was an absolute nightmare mm. because being able to separate work from my home space, my safe space, my, my my pleasure space, that was my biggest nightmare at the time was not being able to separate my spaces. So I think with Poltergeist, that is something that's very resounding in that film where this family just moves into a space where they want to make a home. They want to they want to make a family. They want this space to be theirs. And that space was like, uh, uh-uh. <laughs> quite the opposite. Qu- Try again <laughs> or don't get out. Wow. That was such a good question. Thank you. We want to hear about your first times. So you can email us at the horrors podcast at gmail.com. That's horrors. W H O R R. O-R-S. You can email us to tell us about your first horror movie or your first time and maybe how that impacted the way you view horror now or like what you're afraid of now as an adult. But next time, what are we reviewing? We have a very specific episode planned in honor of spooky season. We are going to be watching and discussing a fan favorite, Halloween. Yes, the original Halloween. I haven't seen it yet. So I am looking forward to seeing it, but I'm also very scared. I know this is one of the quintessential slasher films that exists. Yes, we're talking about the OG or one of the OG final girls and some of the first representations of the antithesis of the final girl, right? What we really want to do is not necessarily surround the conversation with Michael Myers because Mm -hmm. Michael Myers has this mythos and history to him that is all permeating when it comes to the culture of horror. But we really want to be focusing on the ladies Mm -hmm. and really just figuring out how it is they drive the story and why this movie has lasted the test of time for as long as it has. Exactly. So again, email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. Tell us about your first experience uh, with your first horror film or horror experience. Well, maybe not an experience. I guess you could if it had to do with the film. You can find us on Instagram at thehorrorspodcast as well. Email us, follow us. Yeah, be our friends. Yeah, we would love that. All right. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye.